Revelation chapter 6. Revelation 6. We talked about at the beginning of the book of Revelation that the theme of Revelation is that the king is coming. You know, this is the revelation of Jesus Christ. So it is revealing to us the, the coming king and, and, and what he's going to do as he comes. And so as we begin chapter 6, we're going to get into this in earnest now as Jesus you know, begins to open the scroll and break the seals and to take that which is rightfully his. So you know, earlier in Revelation, after John recorded Jesus' messages to the seven churches. He was supernaturally transported to God's throne room in heaven, and, and there he saw Jesus, the only one worthy to take the scroll, the only one worthy to enact God's plan to rescue our world. And so while heaven erupts into worship, declaring Jesus' worth over and over again, uh, Jesus does not hesitate to act once he has the scroll in his hands. And thus by breaking the seals in chapter 6, Jesus begins the, the period that we call that seven-year period, the Great Tribulation. So chapter 6, verse 1, and I saw when the Lamb opened one of the seals, and I heard, as it were, the noise of thunder, one of the four beasts saying, come and see. And I saw, and behold, a white horse, and he that sat on him had a bow, and a crown was given unto him, and he went forth conquering and to conquer. So here we see that the Lamb, Jesus, he breaks the first seal, he opens the first of these seals, and events begin to take place. Now, Jesus, when he opens the seal, when he breaks the seal, he is displaying his authority to claim what the document states. And thus, since the document states God's plan to rescue our world, in a sense, the, the title deed of the earth, that he is saying, this is mine, and I'm going to take it back. It's going to be done the right way. I'm going to fix it. When Jesus breaks its seal, it is an action which communicates his authority, that he is the one who has the right to do this. And so after Jesus breaks this first seal, John hears a sound that sounds like thunder, and it's the thunder is one of the four, King James says beasts, but earlier we learned that's a reference to these angels, the cherubim, these living creatures. One of these cherubim says, come and see, but more literally there, it's a command to come forth, not for John to come and see, but for someone to come forth. And so the command to come is to the white horse and its rider, not to John. Now, before we get to this white horse, there's a couple observations I'd like to make here. First off, while we see the cherubim, it declares that they worship the Lord day and night, that is not the only thing they do. So when they're not doing other things, that's what they're doing. Because here we see that the cherubim is sent on a mission to, you know, command this horse and rider to come forth and to do something. I think it's important to understand that while there will be lots of worship in heaven, you're going to want to be near the Lord in heaven. It also tells us we're going to go in and out. Later in Revelation, it tells us that we will go in into heaven, into the Lord's presence, and we will go out. So the Lord will have things that he sends us to do in eternity, just like Adam and Eve had things that the Lord put them, gave them to do in the garden. Uh, and, and my guess is, is that you'll want to be before the Lord, you know, frequently. Uh, I know I will want to be there. I, I've never seen him. You know, there's something to be said, and I understand not all of us are this way. I'm a slightly emotional wreck most of the time. But there's something to be said for physical contact, right? You know, my family is a very huggy family, you know, and, and it, it, I love my, you know, my siblings, and, you know, it, there's something about getting that 
that familiar hug, knowing you're loved, right? You know? Never seen Jesus. Never been able to hug him. Never been able to tell him thank you in that way, you know? So, I believe that we will want to be there, whether you're a hugger or not. The second thing I think I'd like us to look at here before we move on, I, I like rain. I don't know about you. Like I, for me, it's a peaceful thing. Like when the, the rain's coming down, and, and I like sometimes just sitting out on the porch and sometimes even going out and walking in the rain. I just like it. It's very calming for me. I do not have the same opinion, however, about thunder and lightning. So I can't even imagine what a voice that sounds like thunder is like, you know, uh, not like me, not like anyone I know, I imagine. But I, I do think that it explains a little bit to us why men sometimes mistook angels for the Lord. It's like nothing else they'd ever seen, nothing else they'd ever interacted with. You know, we might entertain angels at unawares at times, but they are radically different than us. It's why our interactions are not meant to be more than they are God's ministers to us. You know, it is very popular for, for, you know, shows to show angels falling in love with humans and things like that. And, you know, we get all, you know, people get all romantic and emotional about those things. Understand something, that when romantic relationships took place between angels and humans, it upset the Lord so much that his only answer to deal with the offspring of such relationships was to drown them in a flood. Consider that and ponder that for a moment. We're not meant to interact like that. So, John here is very distinct from these living creatures, these cherubim. We are, have our own glory that God has given to us. They have their own glory that God's given to them. But we are distinct and different creatures. So I don't pray that God sends me an angel. Um, Jesus is enough for me. Uh, you know, I'm thankful for the angels that take care of me. I know I keep them quite busy. Um, but uh, Jesus is who we're looking for, not angels. Now, the horse, verse 2. And I saw and behold uh, a white horse. And behold is in uh, reaction to the, the cherubim's instructions to come forth. Behold, something comes forth. A white horse. A radiant, bright, white horse. Now, that's, that image of a radiant, bright, white horse and someone riding on it, uh, it may be familiar to you because that's the same kind of way the Lord will ride into our world when he returns to reign, right? He's going to come on a white horse. But Jesus isn't on a horse right now, right? He's got a scroll in his hand and he's breaking the seals here. So this is an imposter on the horse that, you know, is, 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 looks like one that, the one that Jesus is going to ride in on. So this is an imposter here. It's not the Lord. It's someone who is posing as the Lord. Now, during wartime, rulers rode horses. Generals rode horses. During times of peace... They rode donkeys. So Jesus came into Jerusalem riding what? A donkey. I'm not here to start a war. I'm not here, I'm not here as a freedom fighter. I'm here to offer peace. And of course, they rejected the peace that God, that Jesus offered them and crucified him. Uh, the next time he comes, he will be riding a horse and it will be, not be to bring uh, peace, but it will be to secure peace through the sword. And so he will do that then. So the idea, though, that he's riding a horse, this rider, whoever he is, means he's coming into a time of conflict. He's not coming into a time where there's peace on earth. He's coming into a time where things are a mess. And so, you know, his concept is here is, I'm coming to rescue the world from the mess it's in. Now, 
It mentions here that he had a bow. A bow is a weapon of war. I realize that, you know, uh, Mr. Legolas uses his bow in all sorts of ways, uh, but bows without arrows are not usually very effective. Um, I would definitely want a different weapon if someone just gave me a choice of a bow or something else. Bow with no arrows or something else, I would pick the something else, all right? The main job of a bow is, is to pull something into it and let it go at great speed. Uh, but this guy has no arrows. He's got no, no bullets in a sense, you know. Uh, he's just got the bow. So uh, that's significant. We'll see why in a second. It also mentions that a crown was given unto him, and he went forth conquering and to conquer. Now, a question we need to ask is, why is a crown being given to a guy who's riding a horse that Jesus is supposed to rise when Jesus is the only one who's worthy? Right? Why does he have a crown? Why is he on Jesus' horse? In a sense, it's not really Jesus' horse, but why is he all these things given to him even though they belong to Jesus? That's his role. Well, as I said earlier, the world is in conflict. This guy's coming to deal with that, and the world will be looking at that time for a savior from their conflict. And this imposter will succeed in duping them into the idea that he's the one who can rescue them. And so it says he went forth conquering. He was sent forth. The the cherubim said, come forth. He did, and now he goes forth. And it says conquering, which means being the victor. So as he goes to conquer, he is successful. And then it says to conquer. It means in his successes, he keeps going that he might be more victorious, that he might gain more victories. Now, who is this rider? Who is this individual on the white horse? Well, this is the last man, last individual in a train of many men that Satan has attempted to raise to this position. Each time in the past, the Lord has stopped it because it was not the Lord's timing. But now the enemy is permitted to move forward. We have talked about this all through Daniel. We talked about it a little bit in Revelation as well. But we have, I mean, technically you could say we have three plans. We've got the, the humanistic plan our plan, where we think we're actually in charge, you know. I'm always amazed when when certain things happen, like natural disasters, pandemics, things like that, and and you see just how little we can can handle these, how unwell we handle these things, how poorly we handle these things. And and, and yet, we think we've got a plan to fix everything. So you've kind of got our plan, and it's really, to be honest, it's not that important because it doesn't work. Then you've got the enemy's plan, But we have to remember that even though he is much more intelligent than we are, he's been working at this a lot longer than we have, while he has well-laid plans, he is not in control. He cannot predict when the time will be that God will let him, his plan, go into effect. So Satan is constantly trying to bring his plan into effect, and you see it rise and fall, rise and fall, because all his plans will come to fruition, and the Lord says, no, not yet, and then it crumbles. And so what we are seeing here is now the Lord is finally saying, yes, I will let you do your plan. Take your best shot. Now, we see these plans. Uh, The third plan, of course, is the Lord's plan, you know? And the Lord is sovereign. He knows everything, and he's totally in control, and nothing else anyone else does affects his plan, right? So we see this plan of the enemy that is up and down, that God is stopping, and we see God's plan running together in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. And we're going to see that this describes when those two will coincide and the Lord will say yes and the enemy will be allowed to fulfill his plan. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, we're going to look at verses 7 through 10. The entire chapter deals with um, the end times and stuff, but specifically just looking at verses 7 through 10 right here. 
as we try to identify this individual. In 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 7, it says, For the mystery of iniquity, the plan of wickedness, Satan's wicked plan, his, you know, you heard God loves you uh, and he has a wonderful plan for your life, right? Satan hates you and he has an awful plan for your life. It's equally true. And he has a plan for the world. And so this mystery of iniquity, Paul says here, it does already work. It's not a future thing that's going to happen. It's already at work. However, only he who now lets, the word means holds back or withholds, he will let until he be taken out of the way. So God, the sovereign God of the universe, is constantly at work, even though Satan's at work, and the Lord is holding back Satan's plan, keeping it from being fulfilled until the time when he removes himself as an obstacle out of the way. And then it says in verse 8, and then when the Lord lets him go through with it, then shall that wicked one be revealed, this individual, whom, it tells us, the Lord at the end will destroy with the brightness, uh, shall consume with the spirit of his mouth, and shall, who shall destroy with the brightness of his coming. Even him whose coming is after the working of Satan with all power and signs and lying wonders, the working of Satan, his plan, and with all deceivableness of unrighteousness in those that perish. So, who is this wicked one? This wicked one is known by many names. Second Thessalonians 2 verse 3 calls him the man of sin. It also calls him the son of perdition. Daniel 9.26 calls him the prince that shall come, the ruler that shall come. Daniel 7 calls him the blasphemous horn, the blasphemous ruler. Daniel 11.36 calls him the willful king, the king that does his own will. And Jesus, he called him he who comes in his own name. Isn't that interesting? Jesus says, I don't come in my own name, but there will come a time when someone comes in his own name and him you will listen to. You won't listen to me, but this guy you'll listen to. He who comes in his own name. However, the most common term used in the New Testament, and the one you're probably familiar with, is the Antichrist. Now, the word anti, that John mentions, you know, the, the spirit of Antichrist is already in the world. There are many Antichrists, and, and, and that's how we know it's the last days. But the word Antichrist is Christ, you know, the Messiah, and then a prefix, anti, a Greek prefix. A Greek prefix, anti, is a word that can mean either instead of or against. So instead of Christ or against Christ. And this wicked man, the Antichrist, is both, you know. He is opposed to Jesus, against Jesus, but he also claims to be the one people should look to instead of Jesus. And while he is against Jesus and his ways, he will pose as the Messiah who can rescue the world. Now, many teach that the Antichrist will rule the world, the entire world, for seven years. That is not entirely accurate. Uh, Daniel 7.23 says that his reign will trample and will feed on the entire world. He will cause the entire world to take a mark. So there is a sense that you know, he will have influence in the entire world and will have some rule that reaches globally. However, Daniel chapter 7, verse 12 says that three other world powers will still have some kind of dominion during his reign. They will survive his reign of terror, and they will even exist in Christ's kingdom. So the Antichrist's reign mustn't be understood as an accomplished one world government for the entire seven years. It would probably be better to say that his reign is a constant campaign to bring about and maintain a, his one world government. However, Sometimes it will seem to work, and then many times he will be opposed. And the seven years that are going on here are seven years of absolute nightmarish conflict. 
uh, between him and many other groups. Now, we see this progressive campaign of his in Revelation from the beginning. You know, he is at war, but with a bow that has no arrows. He is successful, and yet it tells us he still has more to conquer. So, Many believe that the bow with no arrows means that the Antichrist will initially gain his power and his, his authority, his, his reign in a sense, through negotiation and political pressure rather than the use of military. And I, I agree with that thought. I might be wrong, but I agree with that thought. However, these peace, peaceful, in his mind, you know, peaceful methods of conquest will be resisted by some. And thus, very early into his campaign to set up a one-world government, military conflict will break out. Let's look at verse 3 of Revelation 6 and the second seal. And when he had opened Jesus, he had opened the second seal, I heard the second beast, the second cherubim say, and again, most literally, come forth. So he's saying to another horseman to come forth. Verse 4. And there went out another horse that was red, and power was given to him that sat thereon to take peace from the earth, and that they should kill one another, and there was given unto him a great sword. So I think it's important to understand that while Jesus, Satan's plan is allowed to come to fruition, God is removing his hand that's been stopping him, God is still the one who's in control. He's the one who says when, what happens. He's still, Satan always needs permission from the Lord. And so it's Jesus who breaks the seal, it's the angel who gives the instruction and allows this horse and, and his rider to come forth. And this horse is not white, it is fiery red. It actually literally means a fiery red horse with tinges of yellow and orange on the outside. I mean, this is something straight out of a comic book. And there went out this horse that was this fiery red horse, and it says that power was given to him that sat thereon to take peace from the earth, literally to take the peace from the earth. What peace? The peace that the Antichrist secures. He comes into the middle of a conflict. He brings peace, but it does not last very long. This other rider comes up, and he is allowed to take that peace that the Antichrist has achieved from the earth, and that they should kill one another, and there was given unto him a great sword. Now, that's interesting because this means this peace, that the sword is the instrument of how he's doing this. So this peace that is the Antichrist establishes will be taken away, and the result being that many men will kill each other is done by the means of this sword. Now, the word there, great sword, it refers to the large knife or dagger that a soldier would wear next to his sword sheath. So it's not his weapon used to fight. He would use it to bleed out animals. You know, if they were hunting on campaign, it would be used to cut fruit from trees. It would be used to remove projectiles from wounds. So this is a, a surgical, precise instrument. It's not an instrument of, of, of war, per se. And that's interesting because it shows us here that, you know, while the Antichrist's initial peaceful campaign will seem to bring peace on earth, like Jesus was, you know, is the one who's going to bring for us, it will seem to bring that, but that peace will not last long, and that is part of Satan's plan. Satan's plan includes layers of geopolitical turmoil that he's been laying down for years and years and years. And it will seem like he has brought the Antichrist onto the scene to solve all those problems. However, he will allow all those problems to rear their ugly head shortly into the Antichrist's reign. Now, some Bible teachers uh, teach that the Great Tribulation is three and a half years of peace followed by three and a half years of war. There, that is never taught in Scripture. There's nowhere you will find that in Scripture. 
um, world, global war, world war breaks out very early in those seven years. It's the second seal. And, and it's when rival world powers resist the Antichrist's you know, power takeover. And so the result is, is that there is massive loss of life because of this global campaign. And that shows Satan's reason for removing the Antichrist's peace and after raising him to power to make cannon fodder of men. For his man to crush the opposition and leave destruction in his wake. Does that sound like a good plan for the world? Now you might be asking a question, well, why would Satan raise up opposition to his man? Because Satan's end goal isn't just to get everyone to worship him. I mean, if Satan wanted to get everyone to worship him, he could get a bunch. I mean, to be frank, you know, anytime people are doing things where he's got their attention somewhere else, he interprets any attention on him as worship. So if Satan wanted to get a bunch of people to worship him, he'd already be content. But that is not why he fell. He didn't fall because he said, I just want people to worship me. The Bible tells us very clearly what was in his mind. He said, I will be like who? The Most High. I don't just want to be worshipped. I want to be worshipped as just the Most High is worshipped. I want people to see me like they see the Lord. I will be like him. I will ascend to the sides of the north. Uh, sides of the north. I will you know, be on the throne of God. And I will be worshipped like God. It's interesting, you know, you read the scriptures about the Antichrist and it says that he will desire the same thing, to be worshiped like God. So to do that, though, Satan needs to accomplish a couple things. First, he has to prove that he has absolute power, and that must include the power of life and death. So the enemy of our soul has no problem wiping out all of humanity, which is what the Bible says the tribulation would end up with if Jesus didn't come back, right? So he has no problem with that. You know, it's not like all of a sudden things get out of his control and he's like, oh no, everybody's gonna die. He has no problem whatsoever with that. The Bible says he was a murderer from the beginning. So he has no problem killing everybody. And the second thing is that he must also display that God is not unique and God is not holy. That God can't keep his promises and that his word can't be trusted. Now, Satan has tried to do this for centuries. He has multiple plans where he tries to pull this off. You know, one of those things is he wants to destroy Israel, right? Because God made certain promises to the nation of Israel, correct? One of the things that he does, uh, another one is destroying humanity because God said there'd always be a remnant that believed. Another could be by destroying all the believers because then there's no remnant. So this is why we see these persecutions of Jewish people throughout history and persecutions of those who follow the Lord through history. Whether he wipes out every believer or he wipes out every person, either way, he shows that God isn't faithful to his word. Now, if you're already wondering, Pastor Will, aren't those plans kind of flawed? Yes, you're correct. He's, he's not the Lord, so he has flawed plans. However, I do think there's probably another overarching thought in his mind. Because even if one of God's promises fail, then the Lord loses the moral authority to punish him. It's his only way of escape. Now, while the Antichrist will promise a utopia, we don't need the Lord for a utopia, you just need me, we just need ourselves, Satan doesn't care if that happens. He doesn't care. He doesn't care if that happens or if humanity wipes itself out. Either way, in his mind, he wins. So this war, this conflict that takes tons of lives is part of his plan. He's a murderer. 
and he delights in killing. Now, whenever you have global war like this, it affects other areas. And so in the third seal in verse 5, we see global famine. And when he had opened the third seal, I heard the third beast, the third cherubim say, come forth. Again, come and see, but it should be come forth. And I beheld, and lo, uh, this word lo means here that John is kind of like, whoa, what's this? So this particular horse catches John's attention a bit more, and he says it was a black horse, but that's not why. It says he that sat on him had a pair of balances in his hand. So he doesn't have a crown. He doesn't have, you know, a weapon. He doesn't have, you know, anything these other two have. He's got a, a measuring scale in his hand. And I heard a voice in the midst of the four living creatures say, a measure of wheat for a penny and three measures of barley for a penny and see that you hurt not the oil and the wine. So this guy who's got the balance scales in his hand, he shows up, but unlike the other ones who it says they came and then went forth, he comes and he waits. He's waiting for instructions, whoever this writer is. And we see that these instructions, we don't know who they come from, but they come from a voice near God's throne. For it says, I heard a voice in the midst of the four living creatures. And we know the four living creatures are right around God's throne. So whether this is one of the other cherubim who gives these instructions or it's the Lord himself, we don't know. It doesn't tell us. But the instructions to this writer who has these balance scales in his hand, he says, a measure of wheat for a penny and three measures of barley for a penny and make sure that you don't hurt the oil and the wine. Now, a measure is a a dry quart. Uh, Those of you who know how to measure such things, who cook, I've been told that someday I need to figure these things out. Someday I'll learn. But a penny is the Roman denarius, which is a day's wages. A day's wages. Whatever you earn in a day, that is how much one dry quart of wheat is going to cost then and what three dry quarts of barley will cost. Now, barley is like wheat but less desirable for food back then. It was the food of the poor is whenever you talk about barley uh, because it was less expensive. Now, Grain prices during John's time are hard to know. Um, I, just so you know, you know what your pastor does and how he uh, wastes his time. I, I read this whole big, huge article on grain prices in ancient Rome, and it was uh, definitely confusing. But grain prices during John's time are hard to know because the only time uh, that Roman historians mention grain prices is when there's a shortage and prices are high. They don't mention the normal price. So one rabbi, though, in, in, the, in the Promised Land area during this time, he did mention, recorded that a denarius, a day's wage, normally purchased about seven or eight quarts of wheat. Um, there were also times of extreme shortage where the emperor, the Roman emperor, would make laws uh, that would forbid merchants from ever selling less than six or seven quarts of wheat for a denarius. So if you're only getting one quart for a, a day's wage, any way you shake it out, that is a huge you know, price hike. And, and prices only go up like this when there's a massive shortage, uh, which means famine, which is a common result when war occurs. And yet, it does tell us that there is one group that the famine is not allowed to hurt. See that you do not hurt the oil and the wine. Uh, olive oil here, not crude oil. Um, some like to point out that olive oil and wine are two of Israel's major products, thus stating that while the world will experience um, famine, Israel will experience prosperity during this time. Um, while I said earlier that it's not true to say that, that the Great Tribulation is peace for three and a half years and war for three and a half years, it is more true to say that Israel will experience peace for three and a half years and then they will experience conflict for three and a half years. That is true. So, 
Some have said, well, this is a reference that the famine won't affect Israel. However, um, it is interesting to note that olive oil and wine aren't even a top 10 export item for Israel. Um, Over 80% of Israeli-made wine is consumed by Israelis, and while Israel does reach the top of the world in other exports, they are much closer to the bottom in these two items. In contrast to that, Italy, the location of Rome, and we know that the Antichrist kingdom is the revived Roman Empire, Italy and the most of Europe, they are top producers and exporters of both of these items. Uh, so this perhaps shows not that Israel will be free from famine, but that the base of the Antichrist kingdom will remain free from famine while the rest of the world suffers the effects because of global warfare. It could be that Europe doesn't necessarily see war on their soil, uh, that it's the Antichrist as he's trying to expand his kingdom, and that's where the bulk of the battles will occur. I don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us specifically. But whether it's Israel or Europe or some other region that's intended here, the point is that some group will be spared famine while the rest of the world suffers. And as you know, when one group has and one group does not, does that usually make conflict better or worse? It usually makes conflict worse. So that, I think, is what it's trying to tell us here, is that things are not getting better, they're getting worse. Now, verse 7, we come to the fourth seal, and when Jesus, he had opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth beast say, come forth, come and see, same thing, come forth. And so John looked, and behold, the word they behold is the same word, lo. So again, something unique catches his attention this time. And, and, and I think it's because the writer is unique, very different this time, but also the writer has a traveling buddy with him. It says, I looked, and behold, a pale horse. A uh, pale means a green, gray, ashen, sickly color. This is the way you would usually describe someone's skin when they were sick. You know, when they're, they, they're, their, life, the, the, their face is kind of drained of color. So this horse is a sickly-looking horse. And it says, and his name that sat on him was death, and his traveling buddy, hell, followed with him. And power was given unto them over the fourth part of the earth to kill with sword and with hunger and with death and with the beasts of the earth. Now, death, um, the word here for death is actually two words. And, and it's the and the word widespread infectious disease, a plague. So death is often personified when they would talk about a plague coming into a town or into a place. And so that's probably why the King James translators said death. But it is the plague or the widespread infectious disease. And, and the sitting on it is unique because widespread infectious disease isn't a person. In fact, the phrase here doesn't mean that he sat on it. It means the one who is in charge or over this horse. So this is not a person riding the horse. It's a thing, some thing, some thing that represents a disease, and it's just kind of hovering there around the horse. And again, he's got a traveling buddy here um, called hell, which refers to the abode of the dead or the grave. So Normally, God is holding back, you know, these forces in his mercy, the idea of widespread infectious disease, and of course, the grave. The grave wants to swallow us all up. And so he's holding these things back. The Bible says the last enemy to be defeated will be the grave. And so these things are things that God is normally holding back. But this time, he gives them permission to move forward as part of the enemy's plan. And yet, even as he gives them permission to move forward, God still restricts their influence because they're only allowed to kill one-fourth of the earth. Now, you see, Pastor, well, one-fourth is a lot. I'm not trying to belittle that number. But one-fourth is different than two-fourths, three-fourths, or four-fourths. 
So God is still in his mercy holding back the enemy. Still. Understand that. You know, I've always thought it odd that we call any crisis, like if you have in your, your, your insurance policy and stuff, and it covers you for acts of God, I always thought that was weird. Why does he get blamed for all the bad stuff? You know, why do we call it acts of God, you know? It's not acts of God. If anyone, they call it consequences of the sin of man. We have a broken world. It's messed up, you know? You know, I, I don't think that would fly too well in the insurance policy, but whatever. More, more accurate. But here we see that power, authority, jurisdiction is given to them. They're allowed to do this to kill a fourth part of the earth with the sword, second seal, war. So in other words, the war is going on, but more will be killed with this. With hunger, third seal. With death, fourth seal, the plague. And then it adds a a fourth thing here. And with the beasts of the earth. So while war and famine are already raging, this seal adds infectious disease and wild animal attacks to the list. You know, if you've ever, I don't watch this, I, I don't have the Discovery Channel, but if you ever, you know, when animals attack, you think that looks frightening? Wait till this. I don't tend to, like, okay, so man up, all right? Man up, I man up and I go, but that's not my, like, cup of tea, you know? All right? You know, things slithering and, and, you know, howling and whatever, you know, I like to have good, solid stone between me and it, not tent. But, um, by the way, the fellowship's awesome, it's worth it, the teaching's great, that's not my point. (laughs) Go, go, I'm going, you go. Come forth. But, most of us don't tend to worry about those things, right? You know? I remember I had one time, we were cleaning out the, the carport. And you know, sometimes things just kind of sit there for a while and stuff. And when things sit there, creatures move in. And we are famous in Florida for black widows, right? You know, and brown widows and things like that. And I remember we were cleaning out the, the carport and we found a couple nests. I remember when I was pulling out something and I saw them for the first time, those things jumped off whatever they were on and they reared up on their legs and they were looking at me. And I'm thinking... I think, I think I'm going to go inside. <laughs> I'm not too sure about it. It's not running. However, that's not the norm with animals, you know, um, and creatures. In, in Genesis, after the flood occurred, God specifically says he put the fear of man in animals, right? And the idea is we don't tend to see a lot of these things. It, it you know, makes the news when an animal attacks. We just don't tend to see these things. Can you imagine if God all of a sudden takes away all that fear? I mean, there are some critters I might not mind facing, but, you know, there are others I definitely don't want to run into. And what if they start coming out of all their places? I think we are very arrogant in assuming that we can handle a lot of things, you know? And, and it's only by the grace of God that we live in such an ordered society. What if all of a sudden God says, I'm going to take my hand off all that? Now, it says that through all these things, a fourth part of the earth will be killed. Can you imagine two billion people dying? The world's population is estimated now at 7.8 billion. Two billion people dying. Listen, COVID-19 has brought horrific things to our world. It's infected over 100 million people. Uh, it's taken two million lives. 
Can you imagine how two billion deaths would impact our world? I mean, COVID-19 has been awful, but that's a drop in the bucket compared to this. I can't even begin to fathom the effect that two billion deaths would have on our world. So here's the most important question that needs to be asked. Knowing this is coming, is it really worth it to resist the Lord and try to do things our own way? I mean, is it really going to be worth it? I want you to take a moment and think on the last year and think how awful things have been. I know God's good and He's faithful, but think about all the awful things you've personally experienced in the last year, whether it's you know, your own personal health, whether it's a loved one. You know, we, have, we have people in our church right now who are battling COVID. We have an individual who's fighting for their life right now. I mean, these are heavy things. So think of that and just kind of picture that in your mind. And then add to that the pain that so many other people have experienced, whether it's loss of income, whether the emotional impact they've had upon them because of their lives being changed. And then add one other factor to that. Look at what a poor job we've done in navigating and coping with those challenges as a people on a planet, as a, as a nation, and, and as, as, a, as a culture. I mean, are we better as far as a culture goes, as far as a world goes, as far as a nation goes from when this started? I don't think anyone in their right mind would say yes. So think about all that. Everything that's happened in this past year And now, add to that all that pain, all that inadequacy, all the struggles, all the frustration, and multiply that by 2,000. Because that's the difference in magnitude between COVID-19 and its effects and the fourth seal. It's 2,000 times worse. My brain cannot compute to that. I cannot compute that. I cannot fathom how the whole world would not just, just absolutely just because it's already doing that. And that shows us that the only answer for something like that is repenting and turning to the Lord for mercy. It's the only answer. It's the only answer. I don't care who they are. I don't care what their title is. I don't care what party they're registered with. The only answer is Democrats, Independents, Republicans getting on their face and crying out to God for mercy and repenting of their sins. That's of world leaders. I don't care whether they're communist, capitalist, whatever. I don't care. Tyrant, whatever. Getting on their face, repenting, and turning to the Lord for their sins. That is the only thing that's going to get us out of this mess. It's the only way we find any solutions. And sadly, when it's 2,000 times worse, it's not what the world will do. Just as we've experienced in the last year, unrepentant humanity will take their pain and their frustration and they will look for someone to blame. And when I say that, please do not feel justified on, on who you're saying, yeah, they shouldn't blame people. Because I've seen it from every side. Somebody needs to pay. Somebody's to blame. Because this time, they're going to blame those who have responded correctly to all these horrors. They're going to blame all of the tribulation believers who are repenting when these things start happening in the world. We'll look at that seal next week. So I'm going to wrap it up there. You say, well, Pastor, well, that was neat, 
some good information, interesting things, but how does that apply to me? Well, we might not be in these horrors ourselves, and we may never experience these horrors, but we do live in a broken world. The Bible tells us that all of creation is groaning for the day when the sons of God will be revealed, when we'll get our new bodies, Jesus will come back, and when he's gonna you know, heal the world, and, and righteousness is gonna cover the earth like waters cover the sea, he's gonna fix all that pain and all that brokenness, and he's gonna set things up the way it's supposed to be. All of creation is crying out for that. It doesn't want to be broken anymore. And so we are in the middle of that. So my question for you this morning is, where do you stand in the middle of that? Are you attempting to solve your problems or even the global problems or the national problems that are around you with your own thoughts or even your own actions? We see so many people today who are just responding, and not just unbelievers, tons of people name the name of Christ, and they are on their horse riding out to war. And whether that war is at your workplace or with your family or in your neighborhood or whatever, Are you attempting to solve these problems with your own thoughts and your own actions? Or have you turned to the one who loves you and died for you? You say, of course I've turned to the one who loves me and died for me. I'm saved, Pastor Will. It's not what I'm saying. Are you turning to the one who still loves you and died for you and you still need his grace every single day? Because I don't know about you, I don't ever wake up perfect. (laughs) I don't ever, ever wake up perfect. I have areas that still need to be sanctified. I have areas that I still need to grow. I have areas where I'm still tempted. I have areas where I'm I'm still grumpy. I have areas where I still want to get in the flesh. And without God's grace, his unmerited favor working in my life, I'm going to blow it. If if your approach to your Christianity is, well, this is what I think, and this is what I'm going to do, and I'm going to take it, you know, take it by the head, and I'm going to go. You're going to fall on your face. The whole time, you might even be shouting at the ground, telling everybody how good things are, how you're on the right path. How did that work out for Moses? Not very well. It was an interesting thing when Moses came to the burning bush. He was a different man by then. But even as God commissioned him to set the people of Israel free, to go and to do a hard task, right? The Lord said, throw down your rod. And he said something interesting. When it turned into a snake, he says, now grab it by the tail and it'll turn back into a staff. He didn't say grab it by the head. And I see a lot of Christians today out grabbing things by the head and without even realizing it, they're getting bit and they think everything's fine. The Lord is the one who is the head. He's the one who leads us forward. And we need his grace every day if we're going to follow him into battle. Amen? You know, the Bible says that grace is not just something that justifies us. It's not just this idea, this this ephemeral idea out there. By grace are you saved. Yay. No. The Bible says that grace is something that that builds us up. There's a passage in Acts when Paul was about to go to to Jerusalem. He knew he was going to be arrested. He knew it was the last time he was going to see, um, see these Ephesian elders. And, uh, and so he has a, a pastor's conference there on the beach with these guys. And he tells them at the very end in Acts 20, 32, and now, brethren, I commend you to, the, to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to do two things, to build you up and to give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. 
So God's grace, it does, it saves us from sin, it makes us righteous, it declares us clean before God, it makes us God's child, it does. But it's not just a one-time act. His grace also builds us up every day. It sanctifies us, it makes us more like Christ every day. We don't do that on our own. We don't, we, don't, we don't figure the rest out on our own. It's not like Jesus says, all right, you're saved. I'll see you in 30 years. Every day we need him. And so that's why Paul says, for I've been crucified with Christ. Yet, not I, yet I live, and yet not I, but the life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And then he says this, I do not confuse the grace of God. This is not something that, that is, you know, I, I get it all messed up. I need it every day. I need him every hour of every day. I need his work in my life every day. In Romans chapter 6, it tells us that sin shall not have dominion over us. Why? Because we're under grace. Every day, his grace. It doesn't just say we're saved. Every day, it rescues us from ourselves. Amen? So are you resting on his grace every day? Are you following him? Because if we don't, maybe not you, but I know if I don't, I'm gonna get it wrong every single day. So every hour we need him. Let's stand. Lord Jesus, we don't wanna wait for a crisis to turn to you, to, to look to our need of your grace. And Lord, we certainly don't wanna try to tackle a crisis on our own. But Lord, that, that's... Again, maybe no one else, but that, that's my tendency, Lord. Then when a crisis hits, I go, what am I going to do? And I start measuring things out and weighing things out and rationalizing and thinking. And Lord, you say, be still and know I'm God. Come, come sit at my feet. Learn of me, for I am meek and lowly of heart. And Lord, you call us to with thanksgiving to present all of our needs to you, that you might supply all of our need through riches and glory. And Lord, maybe our need is not necessarily to solve the problem, but like your servant Paul, it's to understand that your grace is sufficient to keep us through the problem. So Lord, we, we don't know those things instinctually, instinctively, Lord. We, we, need, we need you to guide us and direct us. We need your word it's so clear about how we're to live in these days. So Lord, would you fill us all with your spirit? Would you give us an understanding of our need for you? And Lord, we ask that you pour out your grace upon us that we might be the, the husbands, the wives, the moms, the dads, the coworkers, the neighbors, the citizens, Lord, that you command us to be in your word. Not just when it's easy or not just when it fits with our idea of how that should work, Lord, when it's hard and most importantly when we don't want to do it that way. So fill us with your spirit, we pray. Pour out your grace upon us, we ask in Jesus' name, amen.